Welcome to City on a Hill's podcast. This week's podcast can be downloaded on iTunes or our media library at chccny.com. I'll be here, God willing, today, but also next Sunday. And so uh, I'm kind of, uh, even within the series of Gospel of Mark, it's really important. These two Sundays are very connected. So it's going to kind of leave you with a cliffhanger today that will be resolved next Sunday. So I, I really encourage you to come back. If you're uh, on vacation or if you're away, the City on a Hill website does a great job with their media library. You guys do a great job of making these sermons available. So I encourage you to check out both this week and next week. A lot of times I try to begin, you know, something to kind of draw people in, maybe a a lighthearted story. Today's text doesn't really merit that. We got to kind of talk about big things. We got to talk about big, important things. You might say this is sort of a heavy introduction. Can you handle that? All right, let's get right to it then. What is your preferred future looking like? When you close your eyes, when you dream about the future, what's the future got for you? You know, what is that vision you have? What is that preferred future? Let me ask it a more specific way. How can you secure your future? How can you guarantee a good future for you, for your kids? What's your plan to get you there? All of us have some vision for a preferred future. If you don't, you just have to, you know, watch television and the commercials, especially ones for financial investments. They're always pointing to some future. And I don't know what the deal is with this uh, uh, couple in the future. They're always very happy. They're healthy. And they're always on like some vineyard in Napa Valley. I don't know when that became like the thing to go for. But there's so much that's assumed in that, right? I mean, you close your eyes. You're like, yes, that's going to be me. But think about how much is assumed in that. For one thing, that you're going to be around for that long. Sorry, I told you it was heavy. Uh, You know, right? Or that you'll be healthy. You'll be in full, vibrant health. And you'll have all this wealth. I mean, so much of that is assumed. It's like, invest with our products. And here's the implied future. Or buy our vehicle. And here you are, this sort of, you know, healthy, older couple doing your thing or whatever. I mean, you never see a financial investment company that's like, show shots of a tombstone. Like, you're going to die, so make a lot of money right? Or you never see, uh, you know, two just sort of burned out, grizzled old people looking at each other like, I'm miserable. You? Yeah. You never see that. What's implied is that you're going to be happy and you're going to be healthy. And of course, that's what we would want. Of course, if I'm advertising, that's what I would want you to have. We're all, you know, we've all got this future. I just want to think carefully today about how do you secure that and what the Bible has to say about those big life questions. What is, what is that preferred future? I told you it's heavy. Uh, uh, John Piper, a preacher I like, has a way of talking about this with young people, especially college people. He preached this at, at a conference called Passion. There's a lot of college students. And, and, and it's the same thing applies for those of you uh, that are older. He says one way to get at your preferred future is keep asking the question why and don't stop until you get you know, really beneath the surface, right? Keep asking why. And so you got a, you got a young person and they're going through a final exam. Why do you want to do well on their, on your final exam? You ask why, okay? Why do you, you study so hard? You want to make a great grade on your final exam. Why? And of course you ask a young person that and they're like, have you met my parents? Like this should be obvious, but you say, why? Okay. You want to please your parents. Well, okay. I want to get a good grade. Why? Cause I want to, I want to get a good, uh, uh, College transcript. Why? Well, because that'll look good on a resume. Why? Because I want a career. I want, I want a job. Why? 
well, I guess I want, and here's some good motives and some bad motives, right? And I think we're usually a mixture of both. For some, it's, I guess because I want, I want to rule over the earth and subdue it with my God-given ability as an image bearer of the king, deputized by the Lord to make something of this culture. Or, you know, why? Because then I'll get money. Why do you want money? Because money, you see, gives me control. Okay, now we're getting somewhere. So, you know, a, a good thing, right? But it can become a God thing. Or why? Because what I really want, why, why with all these questions, what I really want, if I had to admit it, was I want security. I want somebody who can promise that I'm going to be okay. I want, I want comfort. And that's what we're seeking in this preferred future for many of us, if we're honest. And that's why it's, it's, it's tough to go this heavy at the outset of a message. Why? 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 Underneath it all, it's that deep down, you know what? I just, I want to feel significant. And I want to make sure that everybody knows I'm significant. So I need a lot of power to get me there. Or I need a lot of money to show that I have control over my situation. Or I need a lot of wealth so that I can be comfortable. And those are less than ideal motives. Now, there's one way, actually, that you can uh, uh, avoid all this. If this is all too heavy and you don't want to think about this, there is a very convenient means to just... There's a whole other route to take in life. And that um, is just sort of uh, uh, never ask these questions. And what you need for that is simply Netflix. I, or, right? Or, I mean, Facebook. Or just sort of kind of mindlessly sort of binge watch your way through life and sort of stay in the spiritual shallow end of the pool. And then you never have to deal with these questions. Right? But you don't want to do that. You're here today. You want something more. Or if you're watching this on a podcast or on an internet, you've made a key decision. And so I said all that to say, I guess I made this heavy introduction. And for those of you that know my personality, it's not normally like this is to say, and I thought I'd do this in August, because I figure the people who are here on this day in August, they're the true believers anyway. Uh, you know what I mean? Who separating the wheat from chaff up in here. I, you know, uh, uh, you know th- this week and next week, I cannot, this is what I want to say, I cannot promise you that Mark chapter 8, and we're looking at a very specific passage, I cannot promise you it's going to be the most entertaining sermons you've ever heard. I just can't. They may not be entertaining. But I can promise you they're going to be important. And it's almost like I have a burden to share with you in Mark chapter 8. Fair enough? All right, here we go. Here we go. Mark chapter 8, verse 27. If you know about Mark, you know this is a turning point in the book of Mark. And it deserves a kind of, it deserves our good thinking around this. So here we go. Mark chapter 8, verse 20, starting in verse 27. Oh, I forgot I have them up here too. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And he asked them, who do you say that I am? Peter answered, you are the Messiah. Or if your translation is Greek, you are the Christ. It means the same thing. And he charged them strictly to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. (laughs) But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, 
Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it's come with power. Let's back. I'm just going to back these up here. and We'll kind of start in the beginning. There we go. That first part, Jesus is, uh, as I said, this is a turning point in the Gospel of Mark. If you know about the Gospel of Mark, it's 16 chapters long. And I can catch you up to speed if, you, if, you, if you're not familiar with all this stuff. The Gospel of Mark is one of the four retellings, or retellings of the life of Jesus. And uh, Mark, he takes eight chapters. The very opening verse in Mark says he's the Messiah and he's the Son of God. And he takes eight chapters for uh, Messiah to come out. It takes eight chapters for it to be revealed. They finally get it. He is the Messiah. And then it takes the next eight chapters for them to figure out the Messiah equals Son of God. And so right here we see a confession. You are the Messiah at the midpoint. And then at the very end, and I won't, I won't spoiler alert, uh, it's none other than a Roman centurion who looks up at the end of the book and says when he's on the cross, surely this man was the Son of God. So we have the first half to get to Messiah, the back half to get to Son of God. And here in these verses, Jesus is teaching his disciples what Messiah is all about. And so he's kind of walking through, and this is a great way to kind of kind of begin. In fact, right before this, there's a healing of a blind man where uh, it's it's uh, where Jesus heals in stages. You remember this story? It's kind of a rare thing to do, you know, but uh, he basically heals this blind man. He's like, uh, 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 you know, goes to heal him. He's like, how are we doing? Did that work? He does the healing. He's like, did that work? The guy's like, well, sort of, you know, like, I appreciate it. I actually, for the first time in my life can see things, but they're a little blurry. So it's like definitely an upgrade. Appreciate you, Jesus. But no, in fact, when men are walking toward me, the men look like trees, Jesus is like, all right, all right. So he kind of goes in for a second, you know, healing. And the, and the second time he's like, wow, now I see clearly. Now what's going on with that? Jesus can walk on water. Jesus has healed blind people before. Jesus can raise the dead. Jesus did not need two tries to get it right. You know what I mean? Uh, many people believe that what Mark is doing is showing physically the same thing that's happening spiritually with the disciples. They're getting it in stages. And what they're starting to get in Mark 8 is he's Messiah, but it's still very blurry. That's why he tells them, don't tell anybody about this yet. Because their understanding of Messiah is still so wildly incomplete. It's still very blurry, their vision. They're going to get it. Believe me, after the resurrection, they're going to get it. But they're a long way off. And so he's like, you're, you're getting there. Anyway, he asks them, and this is a great way to get them. It's a great way to draw out this confession. He asks them, and this is good. If you're ever a small group leader or you're leading a hill house, especially if you work with young people, we used to do this all the time in youth group. You would never say, hey guys, what sins do you struggle with? No, no, no. You would say, guys, what do you like? Some of your peers um, seem to be going through, right? 
And then they'll be like, well, I'm glad you asked. I have this um, friend, <laughs> right? And that's kind of what Jesus says. He's like, hey guys, how are we doing in the polls? Who do other people say that I am? Instead of just putting you on the spot and finding out your confession, who just kind of, what's the, what's, the, what's the word on the street? And that's an easy question to answer. And they say, well, some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. One of the, uh, you know, others. Just definitely one of the prophets. And he's like, all right, all right. So we're getting some good, good, uh, uh, we're getting some burn on the street. We're getting some good feedback here. But, but more specifically, he says, who do you say that I am? And there, I think Peter gets sort of elected as the spokesman to say it. But I think all of them were thinking, they're like, tell him. I think they've, I think they've known for a while. It's like, come on, guys, who do you say that I am? You, come on, you've been with me now for eight chapters, boys. Come on. I, what did I do? I cast out demons. I healed many people. Peter-in-law, I mean, Peter, I even healed your mother-in-law. You're welcome. I, uh, right, you've seen me preach and teach. You've seen me cleanse a leper. Remember when I healed the paralytic through the roof? Remember that in chapter two? You've seen me heal a man with a withered hand on the Sabbath. You've seen me be loved by the crowds, hated by the Pharisees. You've seen me speak in parables. I calmed the storm with just a word. Wind and wave, obey me. I cast out a legion of demons. That was fun. Sent him into the pigs. You remember that, boys? I, uh, I, I healed a woman who had suffered 12 years with this issue of blood. And then a 12-year-old little girl who had died, I raised her from the dead i'm not sure if like any bells went off at that point that i'm kind of a big deal but you know you saw me raise this girl from the dead i fed the five thousand. then i walked on water i healed the many in gennesaret i uh, healed the syrophoenician woman's daughter i healed the deaf man i fed the four thousand just like moments ago and the last thing you saw me do was heal the blind man in stages so who am i and the disciples are like, we can do the math on this. We know exactly who you are. And it's good. You are the, thou art the Christ. A better translation is you are the Messiah. An equal translation. Messiah means Christ. Christ means Messiah. That's really important. You know that. It's just the Greek word, right? It just means uh, crazy, loco. Same thing, right? Messiah, Christ. Why is that so important? Because they know. Ooh, they know. And they're doing the math. If you're Messiah, here's one thing we know about Messiah. Messiah means God's anointed. And it has been a long time since there's been a Messiah up in Israel. But now, and not just any Messiah, can you imagine what this guy's going to do? We've been kicked around by the Romans, right? Before that, we were kicked around by the Greeks, kicked around by the Persians. We've been kicked around by the Babylonians. We've been kicked around by the Assyrians. Now we will do the kicking. We're going to be at large and in charge. Don't you see? You're Messiah. And the disciples have been thinking this. James and John are already planning which members of the cabinet they're going to be when Messiah Jesus becomes king, right? And they're talking it up. Whoo, hey, yo, I'm thinking King Jesus. Forget King Jesus. What about Governor Jesus? You like Governor Pilate? How about Governor Jesus? And one of them's like, say it. Oh, I'm not even going to say it. Say it. Say it. Caesar Jesus. Oh, right? I mean, he's Messiah, right? He can walk on water for crying out loud. What's he, if his soldiers of his army die, he'll just raise the dead. What would Caesar do against Jesus' water-walking zombie army? Hmm? The answer is nothing. There's no stopping him. And they know. Thomas like, I'm going to be secretary of the treasury. Peter's like, I'm going to be vice Caesar. I'm going to be like, you know, Peter's going to be the press secretary because he's the spokesman. He's going to talk it up. Oh, oh, this is so good. We know who you are. You are Messiah. And that means your kingdom right here on this earth is going to be military. It's going to be powerful. And we're going to be right there. And Jesus is having none of it. He said, don't, don't tell anybody about that. Right? You got it. 
But you, mm, don't tell anybody. Why? And he said, the Son of Man must suffer many... Th- well, I'm sorry. There's no category for this. It sounded like you said suffering Messiah. The whole point of Messiah is you're God's anointed. God never lets his anointed suffer. He's going to pour in, indwell him with all this power. Yeah, the Son of Man must suffer many things. And be rejected by the... No, no, no. We need to get the elders and chief priests on board. They're the ones who are going to authenticate your ministry. No, he'll be rejected by the elders and chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days, rise again. Well, that must be one of those parables. No, he said this plainly. <laughs> right? You know, sometimes at the, in my Easter sermons, I'm always like, well, I can see how the disciples didn't understand it. You know, sometimes he was so cryptic. You know, what could he mean? A kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies. But then, it, you know, here it's like, he will be killed and after three days, rise again. <laughs> and he said this plainly. And that's why Peter has to do what he did next. Peter's looking around, hearing all this talk about Messiah must suffer and die. So he's like, Jesus, 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 come here, come here, come here. Pulls Jesus aside, come here. (laughs) Jesus. I didn't want to say this in front of everybody because I would never want to embarrass you in front of all your friends. (laughs) Silly rabbi. (laughs) Jesus, um, you're, you're, um... You're so powerful and so good and like, no question. But your doctrine is just off. I'm like telling the Lord of glory that he misunderstands scripture. Uh, anyway, yeah, you, you just don't get it. Like if, if, you would, if you would occasionally read the scriptures, uh, you would see, Jesus, that clearly like, like Israel is who's suffering, not Messiah. Messiah is the rescuer of all of Israel. And now you're telling me all this stuff, right? So here's the deal, Jesus. Um, how about we don't talk about going to Jerusalem anymore? How about we don't talk about suffering anymore? How about you just like do some more of those miracles and we just like make this thing happen? How about you just become king? You know what I'm saying? Like you're there, Peter, you got to understand, there is no category for a suffering Messiah. In fact, if a Messiah were to suffer and die on a cross, that's one way you could rule out that he is not clearly not Messiah, right? And so Peter's trying to correct him in all this stuff. And he's like, so why don't we do this? Why don't you just keep with the miracles? We'll get in good with the chief priests and the elders and all that stuff. And then you can be king without all the suffering. And Jesus says, I've heard that once before. I've heard that once before. And he turns and he says, so you're telling me there's a, there's a shortcut? I can be king without the cross? He says, get behind me, Satan. Nothing like when... Jesus looks at you and calls you Satan. Ruin your weekend. <laughs> Peter's like, what, what? But you got to understand, he wasn't just talking to Satan. You got to understand, Jesus had heard this temptation once before. Somebody whispered in his ear about six chapters ago, you know, you can, you can, be, the, you can be the king without the cross. Take a shortcut. Turn these stones into bread. Just jump off the temple. I got you. Bow down and worship me and I'll give you all these kingdoms. You don't have to go the way of the cross. There's a shortcut. Let's do this the easy way. You don't have to go to the cross. And from Jesus' perspective, he's like, when Satan tempted me with that, I crushed him. Those were the words of an enemy. I'm not going to stand here and let that same temptation come through the words of a trusted friend. So he calls him out as clearly as he can. Get behind me, Satan. You're not thinking about the things of God. You're thinking about the things of men. So what Messiah must do? Is everybody clear? Messiah must. In fact, if you're willing to write in your Bible or you're somebody who's a note taker, circle that word in verse 31, must. 
the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders. Why is that so important? Because what Jesus is saying is, I came to die. The Romans weren't the ones who are going to ultimately nail me to a cross. You think a Roman soldier is going to scare Jesus? He, he has access to legions of angels. You think the Jews were the ones that their power nailed him to the cross? No, he came to die. He came to suffer and die for us and our salvation. And I'll just point out one other thing. It's the elders and chief priests, the scribes who nailed him to the cross. Just as a brief aside, notice it's not the absolute worst of humanity that nailed Jesus to the cross. It is in fact the absolute best. Have you ever thought about that? The most fair, I mean the most moral and fair culture perhaps the world has ever known would be the jewish sanhedrin and the principia iuris romanorum the roman system of law and justice this is like the best humans have ever come up with in terms of morality and legal justice and fairness the roman system of law and the jewish sanhedrin the high priest this is the absolute best humanity can come up with and my point is the very best that humanity can come up with morally is enough to nail jesus christ to a cross what does that show that our righteousness and our own humanistic efforts are like filthy rags to quote jeffrey chaucer if the gold doth rust what will the iron do i mean these are the moral best this is the gold and they nailed jesus to a cross now what would i do who is iron morally see anyway he must come and suffer that's the path of Messiah. If that's what Messiah does, this is where the message turns. If that's, if that's a new category for Messiah, a suffering Messiah, then Peter and all the rest start to slowly piece this together. Then the followers of Messiah, now here, the rest of the message is what, what we must do. If Messiah is not just a, this conquering king, oh, he'll conquer, but not in the way anybody thinks. If Messiah does that, what must we do? Well, he tells us. And he says, if anyone, and now he's talking to everybody, because he realizes if Peter thinks this, everybody's making the same mistake. So he says, if anyone would, would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. And then he tells you why. He gives you four laws of the universe that we're going to talk about next Sunday, God willing. And there's four of them, and each one starts with four. So remember but here we're going to focus on this threefold call there it is if you're a note taker you're writing down deny himself take up his cross and follow me that's what jesus says that's the offer what we must do now there are three separate things but they'll sort of overlap because they're related there they are deny himself take up his cross and follow me let's unpack them one at a time deny yourself what does it mean to deny yourself self-denial if you're like me, when you hear self-denial, my mind immediately goes to um, food, right? I, I deny myself that cookie, right? I deny myself that third dessert. <laughs> One and two is grace. The, 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 the important thing, right, is that I'm denying myself food. Why? Because of a greater good that I've set my heart on. Food or not dying of cholesterol cloggage or whatever it is, right? 
Now, that's a small example, but it gets your mind thinking the right way. Self-denial is just that. It is, it, it, you know, denying yourself something in the short term because you've set your eyes on something greater. But here what Jesus is talking about is not just denying yourself something. Oh, I, I'm, I'm going to deny myself that little sin or I'm, I'm not going to do that because Jesus told me to deny myself. No, 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 no. It's not the, it's not the denial of something to the self, but the denial of self itself. What do I mean by that? When Jesus says deny himself, he's saying, say no to the almighty me that governs your life. Me, the ruler of your life. Everyone in here has been guilty at some time of making me the ruler of my life. Let me put it this way. The opposite of deny yourself is enthrone yourself. And here's what's difficult. This culture is actively preaching enthrone yourself. And use my product to do that, right? Use my product to do that. Every advertisement, you deserve this Buick or whatever, right? You deserve to have the best or the cheapest cell phone. You right enthrone yourself. Give freedom to every expression you could possibly have. And candidates for who are running for office are no different. There's not a candidate that's going to be like, all I can offer you is blood and sweat and higher taxes and pretty much sacrifice. You're going to hate me and this country. But if you do it, we'll probably be better in four years. Those people don't get elected, right? Instead, enthrone yourself. I can let you have it all. Saying no to the I that will enslave me and yes to the God who will set me free. Boy, when I think of deny yourself, I take inspiration. And um, these are are heroes. Um, uh, Nicholas von Zinzendorf. Count Zinzendorf. It's a good German name for you. He was founder in the 1700s of a movement called the Moravians. Now, the Moravians were known for many things. But most of all, the Moravian church, the Moravians were known for how they sent missionaries around the world. They felt God's call to them to preach the gospel to every nation as we should all feel it. They took it literally. And they were known for one passion, to make the gospel known around the world. A couple of the brothers in a Bible study felt so broken as they heard tale of the 1700s. So the slave trade is carrying uh, men and women, slaves from Africa to the Caribbean to work in these plantations. Primarily, uh, they had heard about St. Thomas and St. Croix. And here they are in Europe. And uh, these two brothers were so moved by this that they said, we've got to get the gospel to these slaves in these plantations. But they were not allowed to go. (laughs) Now, when you think. If anyone will come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. Think about this. These two guys hatch a plan. The only way they know they can get the gospel, because they must get the gospel to these people. So they sell themselves into slavery so that they can go and preach the gospel among their fellow slaves. As the boat is leaving the shore, the legend is that as the boat is leaving the shore, they call out to their families, may the lamb who was slain Receive the reward of his suffering. In other words, Jesus said, if anyone will come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. And he's saying he died on that cross to earn a family of believers, right? He died for me. I'm the reward of his suffering. So let him receive it. 
self-denial. The guy who, you know, his preacher, Zinzendorf himself, uh, was asked one time his career ambitions. You ever been asked your career ambitions? You know, you, you ever, I don't know if any of you have had that interview in HR. Is like, what are your career objectives? And you have to make up something so corny, <laughs> you know. But, you know, I, I want to find a fulfilling career that will allow me to utilize my gifts and leverage for the benefit of this organization. You're like, I, I, none of that is true. Like, you know, I want a job. Why am I here? Duh. Jeez. Anyway, uh, you come up with some career objective. I, I mean, I, I'm not knocking it. If you have one, good for you. I, uh, but um, Zinzendorf's was... Uh, Somebody asked him, you know, what's your career objective? And he was a preacher like me, so I think this one speaks to me. And I'm always thinking about, well, you know, I want to achieve this much growth by the end of the year. And I want to, you know, have this platform to speak. <laughs> Zinzendorf was asked, what's your career objective? And he says, oh, I have three. Ooh, ambitious. He says, uh, they are as follows. Preach the gospel. Die. Be forgotten. I'd like a second crack at mine. <laughs> you know, I'd like to edit my original answer, right? Now, these examples from the Moravians, are they outstanding, heroic examples that have never been seen since? No. These are Christians who just take literally, deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. I, listen, what will it look like for you to deny yourself? Will it look like you sailing away to some far off land? Maybe, I, but m- more than anything, it means, and this is the second one, take up your cross. What does that mean? Take up his cross. For 2016, in in this year, we know that, of course, 2,000 years later, we know the cross is the symbol of Christianity. But this would have been shocking to disciples. Ponder this. This is the first time the word cross is found in the Gospel of Mark. So his disciples are like, whoa, whoa, did you say cross? Cross is the Roman instrument of torture and execution. It was so crass and crude that the word cross would not be used in polite Roman society. This is basically a swear word. So Jesus just throws out this curse word. You know, take up your cross. And they're all like, yo, did he just say that, right? Take up your cross and follow me. This would have been shocking. It should be shocking still today to think that the vilest criminals condemned to die by the Romans. This is, what does that mean? Take up your cross. Well, it's a call to self-sacrifice. For one thing, take up your cross means implies totality. You know, Jesus is not inviting you to try on a cross for size and like see if it fits and, you know, if not, just sort of uh, return it for a money-back guarantee. Following Jesus, let me say it this way, following Jesus is not a part-time volunteer activity that you can tack on as an extracurricular activity to your life. It is your life. God refuses to accept a minor role in your life. He requires a controlling place. When he says take up your cross, it's talking about totality. You are either a cross-bearing, self-denying follower of Jesus, or you are a self-enthroning, cross-rejecting disciple of the world. Notice also, he says, he must bear his cross. Now, this can sometimes be misapplied when it says, take up his cross. We say, well, this is my little, my little cross to bear when we're talking about a nagging cough or something, right? It doesn't mean that. When it says take up his cross, I think he means this. Our self and selfishness for each of us, it flares up in unique ways. In other words, think of it this way. We all sort of have our signature sins. I have mine. You have yours. For some right now to deny yourself and take up your cross would be to renounce this craving for wealth, this greed. And money has held the throne of your heart for too long. You're living and dying for it. And to take up your cross is to renounce greed. 
For others, even when I said that, you're congratulating yourself because you're like, that's not me. Whew, glad that's not me, right? And for you to deny yourself is right now, you must reject, you must put away, you must, you must renounce your idol, which is being right all the time. Some of you cannot admit you're wrong. You just cannot admit you're wrong. And if right now your thought is, yes, I can, that's not me. Like, bro! And for you to reject that would be to take up your cross and reject self-righteousness. If you are here and you're complacent and the goal of your life is just to kind of, just kind of chillax, you have to reject your couch for the cross. For some, this verse will be like a seed planted in your heart and you will leave Long Island because of that verse right there. That, this is the verse that has launched missions for 2,000 years. And it may be doing it to somebody in this room right now. For others of you, this is the verse that will make you plant your life in Long Island and make it your mission. This is the verse that has caused people to leave New York. This is the verse that has caused people to stay in New York. Take up your cross. Deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow me. It's saying, I don't have a choice in the matter. I'm not the Lord of my life. Those who are cowardly and faint-hearted, you'll have to renounce a craven faint-heartedness. And I know you want that security and safety above all else, and you'll have to renounce that for the cross. For those who are violent, you'll have to renounce your desire for revenge. And on and on the list goes. You get it? I don't know what your signature sin is, but when Christ calls a man, he bids him to come and die. Totality. When it says take up his cross. Take up his cross. Meaning it's in some ways unique to us. It, 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 it's the same selfishness. But it shows up in different ways. The cross also means you're willing to identify with the one who was mocked and scorned and shamed. I remember a couple weeks ago when Pastor Linda was talking about baptism. She said a great line and I've, I've borrowed it liberally since she said it. Uh, she said uh, water baptism is when you put your jersey on. Do anybody remember her saying that? And I was here, in fact, years ago at this church, and one of your brothers, Bill, young guy, he was talking about how we judge Walmart based on how somebody in that blue apron treats us. A billion-dollar industry with millions of employees, but how one person treated us. He says, when you're a Christian, you're putting that blue apron on, right? And the world's judging you based on, well, that's how Christians are, because that's how that one person treated me. Both those ideas are the same, and I, I, like, I like that. In other words, you're saying, I'm willing to put the jersey on. I'm willing to stand up for Christ. And listen, you know what that means at your workplace. Let it be known that you're for Jesus. And watch what happens. Now, in 62 AD, when this was written, there were literally followers of Christ who read that and were so encouraged because Nero was burning Christians and putting them on crosses. I doubt you will be burned, sunburned, but I doubt you'll be burned alive and I doubt you'll be put on a cross. Okay, it's not, not going to happen in 2016 America. Most likely not going to happen to any of you. But uh, right, back me up. If you stand up for Jesus, won't your reputation be destroyed? I mean, social media will very quickly shame you, Right? And, and let you know that you, you've, you've run contrary to the things of the world. It means identifying with the despised and the doomed. You know, I, uh, I think in some ways, though, it's freeing. Um, the gospel, when it takes root in your heart, you're the, you're, the, you're the rescued one. You're the one who said, I can't reach you on my own, God. I can't do it. Uh, and therefore, 
I, I need a rescuer. And that's why when people come hating and saying, look at you, you don't live a good life or, or you, you know, you don't have good morals. It's like, yeah, I know, I know, I know, I need a rescuer. All right. Maybe a modern day illustration will help. One of my favorites right now is a guy named Russell Moore, M-O-O-R-E, Russell Moore. He's the president of the uh, Ethics and Religious Liberty Commissions, part of my denominations. Anyway, he speak, he's Washington, D.C., so he speaks to politics. He's kind of like how evangelical Christians engage politics, and I love him. Love this guy. And something funny happened to him recently. He said something that one of the politicians didn't like, and he's very active on Twitter and social media and all this stuff. And, uh, very, you know, he's, all, he's got editorials in the New York Times, Washington Post. He's always on CNN and, this, and all this stuff. Anyway, uh, somebody tweeted, um, because he didn't like it, one of the candidates treated, uh, tweeted, Russell Moore is truly a nasty, a terrible representative of evangelicals, a nasty guy with no heart. And I'm reading this like, how's Russell Moore going to respond? I'm thinking, mm, this is going to, you know, get good. And if you go and Google this, he makes all these talk show appearances the next morning. And they all want to know, what would you think of that, Dr. Moore? I mean... I mean, you know, nasty guy with no heart. And his first response on every show was, well, now here's something that my opponent and I agree on completely. He said, I am a nasty guy with no heart. And that's why I need the forgiveness offered full and free in Jesus Christ. That's why I cling to the gospel. He says, you think, you think that's going to hurt my feelings? I sing harsher things about myself in my hymns every Sunday morning. Because I know who I am. I'm a dead man walking. So let's talk about Jesus. And he's preaching the gospel right there. Now, for those of you that aren't into politics, for those of you that are very young, th- th- this is how the millennials in my church put it to me. I was explaining this, and the guy was like, he, he said, listen, Tom, I think I finally get it. He goes, when the gospel goes deep into your heart, you can have more chill. <laughs> I was like, yes, probably. What are you talking about? He said, haters going to hate, right? But what's the worst they could say about a Christian? We've already admitted it. He said, don't you see? I don't have to be right about everything. I don't have to get it all right. I don't have to be in everybody's face. Because the gospel is not about my self-righteousness. It's about me screwing up and being royally rescued by King Jesus. So now I can have more chill. Like, that'll preach, man. He's like, whatever. I already forgot what you were saying. I'm playing Pokemon Go. You know, fine. I had him for a minute. The cross means not my will, but your will be done, right? Isn't that what Jesus said? To go to the cross, not my will, but your will be done. Taking up your cross means, watch this, you give up the right to control your own life and destiny. You die to that, and God alone gets that right. And the world and all its attractions that lure you away lose your power. That's The reason he says, take up your cross, as opposed to try real hard every day to follow me, is there needs to be a finality with sin. And sin needs to be, the the Puritans talked about mortifying the flesh. Colossians 3, Paul says, put to death whatever belongs to your earthly nature. There needs to be a kind of prayer from the church that says, when we say we repent, we can't have it anymore. We can't live for self. It's dead. I'll use an agricultural metaphor. I grew up in Kentucky, surrounded on three sides by farmlands. Crops here, crops there, crops there. And a mile away, my closest neighbor, who through binoculars, Maxine, kept track of everything we did. (laughs) It's not part of the sermon, but it's, you know, she was a great lady. I grew up, so so if you grew up agriculturally, perhaps you'll understand this. I have seen tractors do amazing things. A tractor is not a very fast vehicle, 
It's slow, but man, it can pull. I have seen tractors pull semis out of ditches. I have seen tractors dredge from mountains just completely level. The force of a tractor. Tractor comes from the Latin word trahiri tracto, and it, it, that's exactly what it means. It means pull. And you hear the word tractor? That's where we get the word attraction, to pull together, Right? And that's what's happening. If you try to walk out of here this week and go, I'm just going to try real hard to overcome the world. I'm going to try real hard. But you can't because the world is a tractor that can pull your trailer wherever it wants to go. So the only way you're going to overcome the world is take up your cross and unhitch your trailer completely. The world has no pull on the Apostle Paul because of what he said in Galatians chapter 6. He said, far be it from me to boast in anything except the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Paul says, this world has nothing for me and this world has everything. But my tractor, my my trailer has been unhitched from the lure, from the attraction of the world. And that's that's why Jesus specifically said, take up his cross. There is a death to self in following Jesus. And then, finally, follow me. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. The, uh, you know, the follow me thing is, uh, there's two words there, right? Follow and me. And follow continues down the path that this whole sermon has been, which is really one of exhortation and challenge. Follow. And I get it, I get it. It It's difficult sometimes to know where he is leading. So let me just say this. When Jesus says, follow me, when he's talking about doing the will of God, just trust me, I believe, and this is a very unscientific number. This is based on my unscientific research. I believe, I propose, I surmise that 90% of the will of God has already been revealed to us in the word of God. And that a mere 10% remains. I also believe that we worry so much more about the 10% than we do the 90%. Does that make sense? We, we think that somehow knowing the will of God is the hard part. Can I assure you, knowing the will of God is not the hard part. Whatever decision you're facing right now, knowing the will of God is not the hard part. Yes, it is. Tom, who am I supposed to marry? Where am I supposed to go? Am I supposed to move? Am I... Listen, if you will follow the 90% of God's will we know, which is do right not wrong. Deny yourself. Take up your cross daily. The other 10%, like who you're supposed to marry and where you're supposed to, you know, and all these things, they will fall right into place. But doing it is the hard part. So, uh, that's it. A a, a challenging and, uh, for me, personally, very convicting message. Um, What is the hope? You know, as a preacher, you you try to end with this whole hope thing. Uh, The hope We'll talk about next week. So make sure you come. No, I'm just kidding. I mean, I'm sort of not kidding. The hope really is in next week. But I will say this. One last word. Follow me. There's the hope. Those two letters. Me. If this whole message were to try to get you pumped up to obey the commandments of some dead prophet, can you imagine what a miserable sermon that would be? If, this, if the point of Christianity was to gather here and to kind of encourage each other, hey guys, we're going to do better this week. What a, what a wretched and miserable thing. But that's not why we've gathered. 
Why would anybody take up your cross and deny himself and follow me? Why would anybody do this? And the answer is, our hearts have been captured. And there's almost this expulsive power of a newfound affection. Expulsive meaning, I spit out that old sin I don't want anymore. Why? Because I've tasted and seen. Right? Because of Him. Because He's a living Lord. You're not following some doctrine. I'm not calling anyone to deny yourself and take up your cross and follow some series of religious beliefs. The living Lord is inviting you right now. Deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow me. Why? As a response to the one who denied himself. He took up his cross literally and followed his heavenly father. Why? For us and our salvation. That kind of love demands a response that is nothing less than total. Where did he show us that? On the cross. And as we prepare our hearts for the Lord's table, we remember the words that Jesus said. This is kind of the visual aid that reminds us of the hope we have. It's not just try harder this week. It's trust his grace. On the night he was betrayed, Jesus took some bread and after he'd given thanks, he said, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And after supper, he took the cup saying, this is the cup of the new covenant. He said, as often as you eat this bread, drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And that's exactly what we're doing. We're remembering that great sacrifice that took rebels, God-haters, even the best of humanity, nailed him to a cross and did what? Drew us in to become his very sons and daughters. The whole take up your cross, deny yourself and take up your cross and follow me has nothing to do with our ability to earn our way to God. No, take up your cross, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me is the logical and total human response to a God who gave everything in immeasurable cost for us and our salvation. Heavenly Father, as we prepare our hearts to receive this reminder, this symbol of your body and blood, I pray, oh God, our hearts would be stirred in response. Mark chapter 8, some of the some of the biggest verses, one of the most challenging, for me, the most challenging verses in the whole gospel. And I, I, I don't want to take them lightly, oh God. But I know if it were up to our own power, none of us can do this. But I pray that there would be a a mortification of sin and the flesh in this church. That there would be a putting to death the things that don't belong anymore. That there would be a sense of self-denial, taking up our cross, and following not just a series of teachings, but following you, being led by your spirit, not from a mile away or two miles away, but step by step with you. Grant to every heart that grace that little by little begins to more and more in bigger and bigger ways, wherever they are in their journey, to live out Mark 8 this week, right here where you've planted us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to City on a Hill's podcast. For more resources, visit us at chccny.com.